So I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, in just a minute I'm going to read, starting at verse 15, Ephesians 1. It's been pretty cool as we've been working through the New City Catechism. Have you noticed the subject for the last couple of Sundays in the New City Catechism? It's on prayer, like today's was, where did today's, today's what somewhere, hold on a minute, there it is. Days was, what, uh, with what attitude should we pray? With love, perseverance, and gratefulness, etc. Isn't that great? This kind of that little encouragement just the last couple of Sundays as providentially the, the questions and answers have to do with prayer. Seeing as how we're talking about prayer, I've been mentioning books to you and recommending books to you. Well, I have a great one for you. It's one that I wrote. It's called, Do You I Lift Up My Soul? Uh, I got extra copies. They just came in the mail. So I put some back there. You can take those if you want. They're just sample prayers. Usually a lot of them you've heard because they've been uh, the confessions of sin, several of the confessions of sin from Sunday morning and also the pastoral prayer. And then there's some one-off prayers in the back. And you can use that for a devotional. You can use that as a guideline on how you pray and so forth. So you can grab one of those. They're right there. I've got them set up there where they're looking right at me on that credenza right there. So we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, as we are uh, being taught by Paul, praying with Paul. So he's our mentor, and we're the mentees, so letting him show us how to pray. And here's, there's actually two specific prayers in Ephesians. This is one of them. The second one will come at the end of chapter 3, which we'll look at next week. And this one comes right after Paul has spent uh, verse 3 through 14 giving God praise. So verses 13 through, uh, 3 through 14 is in a very Jewish format. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very Jewish format. Where he praises God for all of these traits. And we'll talk about this again in a minute. And then he comes down to verse 15 through 23 where he's talking about the prayer he prays for the Christians at Ephesus. So, out of reverence for God's Word as it is read, please join me by standing. We're going to pick up at verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to be discipled in prayer by your servant Paul. We pray that you would give us hearts receptive and willing to be taught. We pray that you would help us, that we would... Uh, experiment even, following some of these patterns and get out of maybe ruts that we've been in over the years. But most of all, Lord, we would be encouraged. Encouraged and motivated to pray again. 
pray afresh, pray anew. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So again, one of the longest introductions to a sermon ever is about to come upon you. Okay? So I want to go through some preliminary things before we actually get to this passage. So first off, I want you to notice that this prayer is about the congregation, the Ephesian congregation. It's about them knowing the Father, knowing the Son, and knowing the Holy Spirit. That is clearly the idea here. You cannot miss that point, and I'll emphasize it when we get there, but you can't miss also how the Holy Spirit, or how the Holy Trinity is all over and all inside and all outside this passage. Verse 17 is the Father. Mentions the Father, the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Mentions the Father. In fact, most of this prayer is to the Father. And then verse 17 and verses 20 through 23 is all about the Son, Jesus Christ. And then verse 17 is the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important? Because the Council of Nicaea did not create the doctrine of the Trinity. You can't miss all of Ephesians. And here's a great example. In one verse, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all mentioned. And they're all over this prayer. So anytime somebody tells you the Trinity is some concoction that came up later, just say, have you read Ephesians, dude? Right? You can say, dude, it's okay, because I said it. So, so here's the first thing, and it's about knowing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of Paul's prayer here. Next, notice the three traits are up here again. Faith. Verse 15, love 15, and down in the verse 18, hope. Faith, love, and hope are here again. This trivium of virtues for the purpose of prayer and the purpose of thanksgiving shows up in several places. We heard it in Colossians. It's right there in Colossians 1. It's over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and other places. It's same here. So why is that important for us? Because, my friends, when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul, you begin to recognize that these three traits were not intended to be cute, sentimental terms that he intended for bookmarks and wall plaques. Nothing wrong with those, but that's not the intention. The intention is that these three, three traits are meat and potatoes stuff. Faith, hope, and love. Paul will not get off of it. And we shouldn't get off of those three either. We should have them constantly in our minds, especially when we're praying and when we're giving thanks. Here's the fourth thing. Uh, the next thing, not the fourth, but the next one. Paul's prayers are very specific to the letter he's writing and to the congregation to whom he is writing. He has something specific in mind. He knows things about them. So his prayers are specific for the letter and for the congregation to whom he's writing. Therefore, notice, this one begins, for this reason. Okay? And that takes you back to verses 3 through 14. For this reason. For the reason of God's predestinating us before all creation, united us in the Son, in His beloved, and has given us all of this, and that was the whole purpose Christ came, is to do these things, and it was all God's plan, and it was all God's decree for this reason. I then pray for you. Notice that? He's drawing from verses 3 through 14. But then the rest of this prayer keeps going forward into the, the rest of this letter. It, will, it just weaves in. He is praying that the things he will write about will take root in their hearts. He's writing for specific people 
for a specific congregation and he's praying specific things about them that will show up in this letter and that they need. Okay, That's really important to keep in mind. Next then, Paul states in verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. Faith in Jesus Christ, love for all the saints. As I said already, love is a top drawer issue in all the New Testament letters. You cannot miss it. Here it is again. But faith is as well. Faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in faith, not faith in Buddha or something like that. Faith in Jesus Christ. Top drawer issues. By the way, that is the outline of Ephesians. Chapters 1-3 through three are all about what God has done for us and why we need to continue to believe in Jesus. 1-3. through three. Chapters 4 to almost to the very end of 6 is all about the love for the saints. That's the outline of the book of Ephesians. If you ever wanted an outline, there it is. Chapter 1, 15. Okay? Top drawer issues. So we can't sideline either one of those. They have to stay front and center, out front all the time. And so then, this prayer is for the sake of of, uh, of those two characteristics, specifically faith and love, that they will grow and expand in this church. Lastly, Martin Bootser notes, and you see his quotation should be at the end of your sermon notes, so I'm going to quote it again at the end. Martin Bootser, who was a reformer, a good friend of, of uh, if anybody could be a good friend of John Calvin, Martin Bootser was a friend of John Calvin. Very influential in the Church of England. In fact, his fingerprints are all over the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer. Very Reformation-minded. Very Calvinistic. Don't tell the Church of England. Very Calvinistic. That's the joke. It's supposed to be funny. So that's who he is. He was an early reformer. Here's what he said. Quote, All true prayer expresses or implies the petition that the kingdom of God may be perfected in everyone and that His will may be done among us as it is among the angels. It's a good way to summarize Paul's prayer here to some extent. So there's a preliminary material. Now we're going to jump into this prayer, this passage. I'm not going to get into all the nuts and bolts. I've already recommended to you D.A. Carson's book, Call for Spiritual Reformation. He will take this and wear it all the way down. He will just work it all the way down. You will gain so much from what he, how he handles this passage. So I recommend you read that on your own, but we will... We are coming at this prayer, so here we go. You can break this prayer down into three segments, and that's the three points in your worship guide on the back there. First off, Paul prays for them, for them to know God better. Paul prays for them to know God better. It's verses 16 through the first part of verse 18. So let's start out with verse 16. How, how does Paul start? He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, so notice that, I do not see, so this is not a one-time thing, he continues to do this, and in fact, he goes on to say, remembering you in my prayers. Is there a verb tense for that participle? Is that a past tense? Yeah, it's a present tense, remembering, I'm remembering. I didn't do it once, I'm continuing to remember you. Now why is that important? Because this prayer he's about to give them is not a one-off prayer. It's something he's constantly coming back around to when he thinks about them and he prays for them. In fact, it's the model. His habit is the model. Remembering you in our, in our prayers is the model that he will call the Ephesians to when you get to the end of the book, when you get to chapter 6, when he will tell the Ephesian Christians in chapter 6, praying 
at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. To what end? Prayer. Pray with perseverance like I've already given you a model. I'm always remembering you in prayer. So here I've given you a model. I'm a role model in this. I know I am, so I'm giving it to you. So now you step in there and follow suit. Remembering, right? So with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Part of the reason why Paul is telling them this prayer is as a model so that they will go, oh, Paul prays for us these things. We ought to be praying as well. Always. Okay? Notice the content of the, of the prayer begins then in the next verse. When you get to verse 17, to the first part of verse 18. That. So that's a very important word. That tells you, here's what I'm praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts light. Notice what the prayer is all about, that first part, that you may know Him, in the knowledge of Him, right? Paul's not talking about academic knowledge, that you may know the loci and some systematic theology, which is not bad to do, by the way. It's good to have it. But he wants them to know Him, right? To know Him. It's extremely important. You, you know, okay, guys, you may not know this, but there is never a book going to be written about how to understand your wife. The only way you're going to understand her is by knowing her. And how are you going to know her? By being engaged with her, right? Her likes, her dislikes. I'm, I, you could go with the women with this, by the way, too. There's no book to understand the men, trust me. There's nothing. Right? But it's by, no, by being with them, and then you get to know them. You get to know the likes and dislikes. You get to know their favorite colors. You get to know when they get set off and get angry and when they get sleepy and all that. You know them. I mean, that's the knowledge Paul's talking about. I'm praying for you that you will know God better. Our problem in North America is that we want to have a better God. That's what's behind most of our problems in the U.S. is that we want a better God. The problem is we don't know this God well enough. And so Paul's praying that they will know Him better. That you will know God better. And the way to know the Father better Paul puts it in his prayer. It's by the donation of and the involvement of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. By the donation of and the involvement of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. When you run through Ephesians, you find all the different things the spirit is involved in. I'll give you a couple of samples. So like we read in the call to worship from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, in Christ, we both have access to one Father by the Spirit. Look at the call to worship. You'll see it there. It's the last, it's that last line. We all said it together. For through Him, through Christ, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Who makes us able to have access to the Father? It's Jesus who opens the door. It's Jesus who makes the way. But who's the one that actually enlivens us and brings us in? The Spirit. So it's by the Spirit. You need, we need the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know God better. We know Him better. But also this wisdom and revelation, when we hear the word revelation, especially as Presbyterians, we break out in highs, okay? But it's the idea of enlightenment. And you know that because he goes on to say that the eyes of your heart may be open. The eyes of your heart may be open. You may come to finally open your eyes and see what's there. 
to see who he is. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. How often we get caught in the trap of this moment. We think this moment is all there's ever going to be. And yet David keeps lifting his eyes and remembering who God is. And that's what we're being called to do is to open our eyes to know God better, which will carry us through those storms. And so there it is, having our eyes open, the eyes of our hearts being open. And again, it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation who opens our eyes. Just think of those moments when you have read a certain passage of Scripture a number of times. You've read that passage you know, for 30 years, you've read it once a year maybe, and then all of a sudden one day you're reading it and you go, aha! And you finally see it for what it is. That happened this week, by the way, and that was why I wrote that blog piece talking about why the ask, seek, and knock words that Jesus gives has to do with don't judge others that you will not be judged, etc. And if you don't know what it is, I can show you where the blog post is. It happened this week. It's one of those aha moments. It was beautiful. Okay? And it's the same thing. It's like your eyes come open. Oh, I'm finally seeing it. When, when I first got contacts, I've had contacts one time. I hate contacts for the passion. But when I had contacts, I have a stigma, so the contacts have to be weighted. It always feels like there's dirt in my eyes, right? The first time I put contacts on, it was like my eyes were open. Greens were, like, really green. I haven't seen anything that green ever that I can remember. Yellows were glorious and spectacular. Oranges, I mean, flowers looked amazing because there was no reflection coming on the back of my lens and my glasses and thus blurring the colors, right? My eyes were open for the first time. That's what he's praying for, that kind of thing. That the spirit of revelation will come and open the eyes of our, your heart so that you'll know God better. That's what he prays for, that they will know God better. So not only is he asking that they will know God better, but he's also asking that they and we, if we're learning from this, that they and we will know better what God has for us. We will know better what God has for us. This is the second point. And it's it's the rest of verse 18 into verse 19. So there are three parts to this segment of the prayer, and they are marked out by the word what in the ESV. I tried to emphasize that as I was reading. And if you've got your Bible and we go through, you might want to circle the word what, because there's three of them, and it's important. So let me back up, and we'll start with the eyes of your hearts being enlightened. We'll start there, and we'll go to the first what. Here we go. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. There's the first part of knowing better what God has for us, that you will know what is the hope to which He has called you. When you get to chapter 2, verse 12, He reminds the Gentiles of that church that one time, because they were outside of Israel and outside of the covenants and not part of the seed and descendant of Abraham, they had no hope. It's what He says in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, once we had no hope, but now we have hope, He goes on to say, being adopted into God's family and now becoming descendants of Abraham by grace, we now have, have hope, and so he says in chapter 4, verse 4, that we have this hope. So here's what he's praying. Here's, we need to know better what God has for us, for example, what is the hope to which He has called you? Next, he says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. 
what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints? We ran across that same phrase over in Colossians. It's not about what we've inherited, though we do inherit this way. It's the fact that we have been brought into God's inheritance. That was the language that, as Peter was reading from Deuteronomy 32, did you hear it in verse 29 or verse 9? God's people, his people, Jacob, is his heritage, is his portion. And it's all over the Old Testament. God's people are his treasure. And now Paul says that you may know what are the riches of this inheritance you've been brought into. You belong to God. You're his treasured people. Oh, that you would know it better. There's some people that need to know that. That you're part of the treasured people of God. So knowing better what God has for us, here's the third one. By the way, that comes up all over Ephesians, especially starting in chapter 2, 11 to chapter 3, verse 13. Paul is going to hammer on that. Once, you and I as Gentiles, we were outside the covenant. We had no hope. We didn't even have God. But now, now, God has taken us who were outside and brought us inside. We now are part of the commonwealth of Israel. He says specifically, we now have God. We now are part of the people. We both have access through Christ by one Spirit to the Father. In fact, we now are being built up into a temple. And he calls this, then he starts calling this the mystery in chapter 3. This is the mystery that's in the Old Testament that our forebears didn't recognize. And here it is, that we're in. Isn't that great? And that's what he prays for. That's what he's asking for. So that it, I just wanted you to see also how this prayer flows into the rest of Ephesians. Here's the third thing. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. Notice what he wants them to know. No better what God has for us. It's the immeasurable greatness of His power. The immeasurable. Think of that language here. This is measurable. I don't know if that video can see me. Can that video see me? This is measurable. Here's my tape measure. Okay? I've measured that. Right? That's measurable. It's limited. And what did Paul just say about God's great power? Immeasurable. No tape measure can wrap it up. It's beyond our comprehension. It's the immeasurable greatness. Oh, yes, yes, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power. And think about it. Who do you know needs to have that prayer for them? Who claims to be a Christian yet finds themselves enslaved to some besetting sin? Do they not need to know the immeasurable greatness of His power? Whose marriage do you know is falling into shambles and to pieces? Do they not need to know the immeasurable greatness of His power? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Isn't this great? And it's exactly what we need to be praying for one another and for others that we know. That they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power. It's a great prayer. But notice it's not prayer that's running loose out there. It's not prayer that rises up against us, His people. But instead, what does he say? It's power that is what? Toward you who believe. There's a very specific belonging of that power. It belongs to you. It's toward you who believe. That's pretty encouraging. 
So John Calvin puts it this way in his commentary. Quote, Paul wants the Ephesians to contemplate the power of God so that they will not be discouraged by their own weakness. Oh, yes. We need to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe so we'll quit being discouraged by our own weakness. Knowing better what God has for us. That's why Paul then goes on to expand. He takes that last what, and he is going to expand, and it's going to explode. It's going to get really, really huge. But that's to help us understand what he's praying for there. And so he's going to expand on this immeasurable power, God's immeasurable power, and he prays that we will know God's might better. Knowing how God's might is better. And that's the rest of this prayer, verse, end of verse 19 through verse 23. Where is the working out of his great might seen most fully? He tells you in verse 20. Where is that immeasurable greatness of his power that he works towards us who believe, which is according to his wondrous might? Where does it work out most splendidly? the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That's what he says in verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now think about that. In the most impossible situation of death, God's power worked. In the most impossible situation of a human being, a limited, finite human being, Jesus' humanity, being seated on the throne of God to be King of kings and Lord of lords. Impossible! The ascension is a part of that as well. My friends, as good Protestants like our Roman Catholic friends, we obsess in the West on the death of Jesus. We, and Which is fine. We can talk about death of Jesus all day long. It's extremely important. But without the resurrection and ascension, it ain't nothing. And the resurrection and ascension has everything to do with how we live and, how, and what happens to us today. And so you need all three of those. But Paul is laying out specifically here that the resurrection of Jesus from the death, an impossible situation, there's where the immeasurable greatness of God's power is displayed. The power of God that's toward us right there in the resurrection and in a human being, a Jew, being seated as King of, King of kings and Lord of lords. Impossible! But it happened. He did it. And that should lift our hearts. That's what keeps us from being discouraged by our weaknesses. In fact, Paul will take that. If you just glance over to chapter 2, the first 10 verses, he will say, and it has everything to do with you today. We were once dead in our trespasses. And we were like, by nature, children of wrath. But by grace, God saved us. And what did he do when he saved us? He raised us together with his son and seated us you hear it? Resurrection and ascension language. And seated us together with Him in the heavenly places. The immeasurable greatness of His power. It doesn't mean we're going to have success and victory and wealth and wealth all day long. But it means that whatever comes, our God's immeasurable power, the immeasurable greatness of His power, can do something about it. So where do we need to be? At least be on our knees for goodness sake. Praying and knowing, having faith in Him, not me, not you, not your political action committee, not in your government, not in any uh, abilities or plans you've got set up. Faith in the God whose immeasurable greatness was exhibited in power in raising Jesus from the impossible death 
the impossible great, uh, the impossible tomb, and ascending him, raising him to the right, his right hand, to make him king of kings and lord of lords. Woo! Isn't that exciting? I mean, come on, somebody, be Pentecostal for a moment. Woo! Yes, thank you. I see those hands. God bless you. That's awesome. But that's how enthused that ought to make us. And that's part of his prayer. That we would know how God's might is better. So the Father's great might is further, uh, further seen in Christ's coronation. We already talked about the ascension, but he keeps up the ascension in verse 21. Notice how important it is. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Oh, we've already heard those four groups. We heard those this morning in this morning's sermon. In Colossians chapter 1. Oh, maybe we need to listen to the Bible. Right? Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named. Every conspiracy that is named. Above them. Above them. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. Wow. But surprisingly, the great might of God exhibited in Christ is used and employed in a specific direction. Notice how the rest of this prayer goes in verse 22 and 23. So the Father put all things under His feet. Put. Not will put. Not will one day put. Not might put. Not could put. Has already put. God has already put all things under His feet. Jesus is now Lord of Lords and Kings of King of Kings. He's put all things under His feet and gave Him as the head of all things. In what direction? To the church. The immeasurable greatness of His power that He exhibits toward those who believe. Exalted to the Father's right hand, King of Kings and Lord of Lords to the church. Can you see it? Paul is all about this all the way to Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the at least the end of chapter 5, verse 33. He will not let this go. The church is that important. In fact, he goes on to say, he's made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. The church, odd thing, I need to talk more about this, but the church is the fullness of Jesus. The fullness of him. But it's the fullness of Jesus because Jesus fills the church all in all. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. Very interesting. That means the church is very important to you. This congregation is very important to you. As part of the church, right? Okay. And so that summarizes, that last two verses, especially verse 22 and 23, summarizes chapter 2, 1 through 5, 33. Summarizes most of the themes in those chapters. So there's Paul's prayer. They would know God better. They'd know better what God has for them. They'd know how God's might is better. So one of the aims of this prayer, if we're actually learning to pray with Paul, then one of the aims of this prayer that should be the aim of our prayer, for example, and we'll start at the end here, is that God's people, His church, that we will come to relish the importance of being the church and we will come to recognize our role in the congregation. If it's that important, maybe I need to step, stop sitting back and doing nothing, let everybody else do something. Maybe I need to actually get engaged. Maybe I need to 
love the congregation, love the church better because I don't love it very much for whatever reason. I don't know. But there's part of that prayer where the aim ought to be that we would come to relish the importance of the church and to our role in the congregation. Another aim of our prayer should be that those for whom we pray would really know God better and stop looking for a better God. They would know God better and not be looking for a better God because there is no better God. This is the best. Our problem is that we don't know Him. And that requires, then, the Holy Spirit's work to enlighten the eyes of their hearts and our hearts. Again, as Martin Bucer put things, all true prayer expresses or implies the petition that the kingdom of God may be perfected in everyone. There you have a sample of it. Perfected in everyone, and that His will would be done among us as it is done among the church. So, dear friends, all week, uh, actually the last two weeks, having worked on this passage, that's been an enjoyable part of praying, usually around noontime. If you ever come by and see me walk around outside the building, you'll probably notice I have the New Testament in my hand. I'm working through this prayer, but actually praying these prayers for us. What a great set of prayers. Lord, Heritage needs to know you better. We need to know better what you have for us. We need to know how your might is better. But then taking that and praying for other Christians. There are Christians who desperately need us to pray that for them. You probably already have two or three just pop in your head. What a great prayer. Letting Paul mentor us and lead us to pray so we come to pray with Paul. Let's pray. Well, God, what an encouraging, encouraging passage as we learn to pray with Paul. Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray for our adult children who profess faith in Christ. We pray, for, we pray Lord, for our mothers and mother-in-laws. We pray, Lord, for others who we know who are Christians. Oh, Lord, that we, one and all, would know you better. We confess to you that our biggest problem is trying to look for a better God. Forgive us for that. And by the work of your Holy Spirit, brightening our eyes, opening our eyes of our heart, may we come to know you better. Lord, we pray that for ourselves and others, Lord, that you would be with us, that we would know, uh, we would know better what you have for us. We would know the hope of our calling. We would know how we're part of this amazing treasure of your you, We're your treasured people. And mostly, we would know better immeasurable, unlimited greatness of your power that's toward us who believe. Power that you worked out and showed in raising your son Jesus Christ from the dead and seating him at your right hand. Oh, that we would know better what you have for us and we would know how your might is better. So Lord, we pray this for ourselves. We pray this for our church. We pray this for our denomination and our presence. We pray this, Lord, for others that you've thought of. Hear our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name.